as it's early, can we hear? As it's early, we'll call this the dress rehearsal. So no judgment here. Exterior, a long and winding street, Paris in the eighth. Narrator, our location means little to our protagonist. In case you didn't realize, the protagonist is the subject of um, who's wearing this hat, your antagonist. The sky is pissing down. A sign of luck, a hug of welcome, or a reminder that they are, we are not where we are supposed to be. Their wardrobe is packed for a different movie scene. They tug at a woolen hat, a woolen hat, wrench out their iPhone, hopping between Google Maps and Wikipedia. In eyeshot is what Google professes to be the most luxurious of hair salons ever, anywhere, ever, anywhere, ever, a full stop. Shop windows with glistening commodity come to life. Restaurants that do not serve Diet Coke exist here. Once the meeting places for a pedigreed royalty the Duchess of Windsor, Greta Garbo and Monroe, Dietrich and DiMaggio, never on the cover of a magazine. The oversized mansions do not suggest the colorful comfort of Hassan Hajjaj's Riyadima near Jamal Fen Square in Marrakesh's Medina. The colorful upholstered seats relieve our central figure of his aches and pains. He, they, catches wind of a film poster from the golden age of Egyptian cinema. But the nostalgia for home is quite simply too much. Too much of everything, too much of everything for this right now. Interior, a piece of haute architecture on Avenue Matignon, an interior monologue. I am in an empty virtual room. Is this the metaverse? They now call it an immersive Zoom room. This present is obscenely terrifying. I grab a feel in my leg to sense the warmth of the digital image rub against my skin. A polyester pocket, my polyester pocket. There is a freeze you see in the narrator's stance and in their imagination, a freeze of all of our imaginations. The protagonist ponders what they, what they want to say as they unbuckle. The first time in a room of warm bodies since way back when. 
a reminiscence emerges. A pandemic of cold and flu forms a shroud. The endemic epidemic quickly entrenches. It entrenches what? Racial hierarchies, collapses economies, and builds illusory ones. We allow the virus a microphone, one that we choose to hand to the founder of Microsoft. He, they, who could be seen proselytizing about which drug company was doing better at the race to make us all, all the better. Reinscribing the medical industrial complex, enshrining the insurance companies, and draining the national reserves. It was reported that he had put a halt on his foundation's HIV AIDS research program. Simultaneously, his soon-to-be ex-wife, Melinda, informed black women across the continent that birth control would offer them their salvation. Population control is bandied as a solution for everything. A strike, a war, a strike, another war. Economies resuscitate under the umbrella of make-belief. What vessel will take form from the site of this, today's imaginary? So hello, friends. My name is Omar Khalif, and I am, among other things, uh, the curator of Forum at 154. And um, I should say that I almost didn't come today because I was informed that once again, my accounts were being hacked. And the burden of having to spend weeks narrating my predicament to bots who would only be communicating to other bots was just too heavy a, a burden, a prospect. But here we are, and here I am, and thank you. Truly, thank you. Specifically, I want to thank Turia, Camille, and Cameron for having faith that bodies, the more bodies we see enter, the happier I feel, that bodies deserve to exist in space and matter, could and should be in unison together again. But above all, I want to thank all of you for being present, whether this is an unseemly hour for you or not, being physically present in encounter, pivoting towards not a new normal, but the post-normal, where we surface. This event was, as intimated, originally conceived for Marrakesh, where they proclaim that locals speak Derija, an ensemble dialect, or rather a dialect of musical ensembles. A linguist informed me, however, recently that Darija simply means al-daraja, the degree of intensity of speech, of one's right to speak in one's own creolized tongue. Now, I query if this is merely their utopic theorizing, but I like the sound of it, so I thought I'd share it. The first time I visited Morocco, I traversed the Medina Everything and everyone made sense to my ear. 
I found an ease of being in and with this Arabish as what I called it growing up, or what I was told it was called that I was speaking growing up. Much more so than I did with the Khaliji that ruffled my ears where I had been forced to live in my teenage years. Those words made sense. Perhaps it was a summoning, an exile from an exile that would lead to a return. Adrift, ashore, together we resuscitate. Today I would like to ask you to consider a few things. What do we, what do you think of this freewheeling present? Have friendships dissolved or have they been reified in bracket solidarity? Did your marriages collapse under the pressure of invisible forms of warfare caused by the thickening of digital walls? Or did you experience some form of transcendence? What did you make of this rupture? Are you still stuck in a cluster of speculation? Are you subsumed by the question of the metaverse? Are you considering auctioning off your organs as NFTs now? Or do you suffer from fatigue when you are not in back-to-back -back Zoom meetings? We shall debate and consider concepts today of political blackness, histories of painting, concepts of modernity, and the expressive possibilities of cinema, debates that emerge from the continent and its myriad diasporas. A sound file will play. What comes after the beginning? Just as we switch to our first tran transition, this is intended to be the sounds of waves traversing across Jabal Tariq, the Straits of Gibraltar, from Africa to Europe, from my, from my phone. But despite many hours spent searching for that sound, I couldn't find it. So perhaps this is a make-believe. We don't know. Interior a Zoom video. We will now enter the frame with polymath Hassan Hajjaj, whose Riyadh Lima was intended to be the site of our convening. He unfortunately could not be with us for technical reasons. This will be the only mediated conversation of today. I interviewed Hassan about a journey and asked how it is that we became who we are and how do we get there. Welcome to the Zoom metaverse, uh, everybody. It's, it's super exciting to be with Hassan Hajjaj, who, as I sit here in Shoreditch, is uh, mystically present in my orbit with his studio and, uh, and namesake shop, not namesake, but uh, village sake shop, Larash, just around the corner. I feel that I'm always embodying or embodied with Hassan Hajjaj's spirit wherever I go. But it's even more exciting to be 
in the physical presence and to enter the frame as it were today to bring uh, the texture of Marrakesh where this forum should have originally taken place um, uh, and to pay tribute and respect to that with Hassan Hajjaj who is an incredible artist and really a polymath I think of the 21st century and um, hello Hassan. Good morning how are you doing? <laughs> Good, Good to hear from you. Ramadan Karim as well. I had a very Ramadan Mubarak. <laughs> yes, it's the second day. So you have to excuse me for, for yeah. my mood today. But I'm going to go with the good mood, as they say. I think it's really, it's really special that, I mean, for me, Ramadan is always this kind of spiritual, almost transcendental moment. Uh, so it's also nice to be speaking on that wavelength, as it were, as well, about things. Yes, yeah, it's a little bit days and confused the first few days in the good way, as they say, yeah, but no, definitely, I totally, I totally agree. The good days and confused. And I just, I just wanted to begin really by, I've been a fan of your work for a really long time. And, uh, but really, I would say that the connecting tissue for me that, or entry into your work has been the story, as it were, uh, of your beginnings of being transposed from a uh, fishing village in Morocco to uh, East London, or as it were. Can you kind of map out that journey for us a little bit? Uh, how much detail do you need? Um, well, yes, it was uh, a strange thing. Just quickly, my dad arrived to London in the 60s, and we arrived, I came with my mum and my sisters in 1973. So it took my dad a few years to get all our paperwork, uh, to get there, uh, we sort of growing up in uh, Larash quickly it was a very small fishing town. It was run by the Spanish ran ran that time. Um, it was for me. It was like a freedom, barefooted, the sea. Uh, you know, it was a great time. Um, but being plucked out from there to London, as you said, was a funny journey because it was almost going from Technicolor into film noir situation not speaking the language uh getting to school in the middle of secondary school and not speaking english not having any moroccan community of friends so it was it was a good year of like uh you know sort of um feeling out of place and just trying to adjust so it was uh and seven is is not what london it is now <laughs> so yeah I, yeah I think that that tension especially around the 70s it was even before the the rise of you know, post-colonial theory being popularized and ideas of political blackness in Britain. Um, we had seen the American black art movement, but we hadn't, that came not until the 80s in Britain. And so I'm really curious as to how you found your creative voice in that difficult space and how you began to build that world, because you're so synonymous with, for me anyway, building worlds around you. Well, I think this is, you said the good points about the timeline of London and uh, how the 80s was an important time for people like myself. So, you know, when I arrived in England, as I said to you, but not having any Moroccan friends or, you know, Moroccan community, I was left alone to kind of find my new village. And as a person of a foreign coming in, I found myself having more friends from Caribbean background, India, Bangladesh, uh, but mainly Caribbean because they used to thought I was half caste. I didn't know what half caste meant at that time. So we all came from a different background, but we all had the same 
situation happening in London happening to us, being a foreigner, being called names, you know, we went through all that kind of stuff, not, you know, not having the kind of food we want to eat. And I think what happened during that time from the 70s going into the 80s, this was a really important year timing for me because firstly it was adjusting, um, you know, making our own village in London. And then I realised that we didn't have nothing, uh, nowhere to go for ourselves, not the kind of clothes we want to wear, not the kind of food we want to eat, not kind of music, you know. So, so literally, it happened naturally. I started my label called Rap, doing sort of streetwear for my friends. My other friend was started cooking in the restaurant, doing Caribbean food. And the first thing we did, me and my friends, uh, Jamaican friends of mine, we found a pool table because we just hang out in the street, literally in the corner of a church because we had nowhere to go. And then we sort of started hanging out in the pool room in Kenchi Town. And this guy who was the English, an English guy, who was a bit of a kind of, a little bit of local gangs, so they had pubs and stuff like that, but he took a liking to us because we was this kind of exotic foreign kids coming and playing pool in his thing, in his pool room. So he really took a liking to us and we realised he had a basement just full of furniture underneath the pool room. We said, look, let's take it over, let's paint it, decorate it. And my friend had the sound system. So we started doing Friday and Saturday night, like, you know, playing soul and reggae basically at that point in time. So this was our first kind of putting things together. So there's a friend who had the sound system, there's his cousin DJ, you know, we get the other friend to be the doorman and the other friend would be the chef cooking the Caribbean food. And it kind of grew from there. And in the 80s, we sort of had to make our own things instead of waiting because there was no clubs you can go to. So it was like finding space and doing that. There's nothing that you want to wear. Your friend would make in the T-shirt or the jacket. And sort of started that way. And the 80s for me, having rap was like a Zoe. <laughs> you know, Zoe is. It's like it, it became a place of, I was young. I was like 21, I think, 22, having a shop in Neil Street in Covent Garden was unheard of. And I was really lucky because I found a shop when it was Back Street. You know, it was like there was nothing happening there. So that became a meeting place for all my friends, meeting loads of people, and I was doing fashion, street, what now it's called street fashion. I was selling vinyl DJ for records. I was running, selling club tickets. And I was sort of doing stuff between New York, London, a little bit of Paris, street style, and creating my own label. And doing art shows there for my friends, like filmmaker, photographer. So this was my university. This was like uh, being independent and sort of going from there into a journey of photography. And that, and that kind of spirit of the, of, I mean, one today might call it a DIY culture, a DIY spirit, but it's really, it's it's what also we call entrepreneurial spirit. It, it's a it's an entrepreneurial spirit that had to develop out of the the, the confines of the context. And what is most exciting about what you say is, especially as we're doing this on Zoom and in the era of so-called Zoom fatigue, is that notion of community that seemed to bind and connect people together and. I, I feel that that's something that has been persistent in your in all of your practice from the, the you know the streetwear that you know the, the your label now that you're wearing if you wanted to show show us the you know your sukwear uh, which you know you can see down the road near Arnold Circus on Calvert Avenue or uh, or 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 whether it's the 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 space of the exhibition that you create with your photographs and your films or indeed the fact that you've kind of opened up your studio 
to in in Marrakesh just now as a kind of a sort of hub where we were meant to be really having creative activity at this moment or uh, at some point in the spring but weren't able to how how important is has it been nurturing and fostering that community in terms of the actual creative process for you uh well it happened i suppose naturally but <laughs> it was a long journey to, to make it to that uh, to where it is now because um you know when i started doing photography i was you know, having uh, sorry the, the shop wrap i was also do, very active doing parties night uh, clubs for like 10 years i mean really active um sort of almost like five nights a week for year in year out so and i had it and then i had the store during the day and also become an assistant stylist for andy blake uh, some catwalk shows and some uh, magazines friend of mine zach over is a big artist now he was doing some music videos at the beginning i was working behind the scene so i call this my university so when you know also just to rewind it back also the, the way i grew up in london with the kids i grew up art wasn't cool for us you know when we was growing up art was something ponzi <laughs> it was you know when we when we was at school and you had to have a day in the museum it was boring but it was glad to just leave the class but it was really boring to go to the museum we we was the kind of kid if you put, if you put us into contemporary art gallery we probably feel uncomfortable we wouldn't even have to stand in front of the work so this wasn't really cool so i think when i started doing what now what so called art i suppose it, i didn't want that to have that in my in my work i wanted it to be accessible to my friends you know that was the first idea i didn't even see myself as an artist i did everything for my friends to present my culture morocco because everybody's doing uh, in in the 80s especially you know when uh, we'd be a group of friends somebody comes in in an our group of friends oh what's your name where are you from somebody say oh, you know george from brazil oh, capoeira pele samba you know rio de janeiro and then somebody go oh, where are you from say you know you know denzel from from uh, you know from uh, jamaica say you know bob marley rice and peas and when they got to me and i said morocco it was always coming down to back to hippies kind of era hashish kaftan sahara dates and stuff like that so my first body of work was really to develop something to share it with my friends and to share it with my friends was also meaning having a space for them to come in to listen to the music to see something in the wall and to sit on so that really came out in my work naturally as I you know as I sort of you know sort of took on the role of being an artist and took it full time so it really happened naturally and in terms of storytelling with of the camera picking up the camera and becoming a a so-called documentarian of a culture you become very known for photographs that juxtapose uh, significant characters against um objects but also um <coughs> creating language around certain works or bodies of work or even clo- or clothing or other merchandise that you in the past have kind of said is is a a kind of way to demystify certain clichés by almost like putting the cliché right up front and center so that people can almost hold it in their hands and say like well look at this cliche and it kind of it almost fizzles out in the humor that of like thinking of that archetype that has been presented to you but can you talk us through like the 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 photograph the photographic practice and then how that went into and developed alongside these let's call them uh cultural references or specific cultural references um well i think uh, just speak about it quickly i think you know when i 
I was always doing photography. I loved photography firstly, and I was sort of playing around with the camera. I remember buying the camera in 1989 from Zach over here, an old Pentax. He showed me how to use it. I started shooting every now and then. It wasn't sort of somebody who went out and shoot or didn't have a plan. But then by mid-90s, I found myself possessed shooting. You know, I was just shooting and just having him on contact sheets and, and legs, basically, uh, for maybe six, seven years. One day I had the opportunity with Rose Issa, who was a very important person in my career and my life as a friend as one. I asked if I can show him my work, uh, see what, if I have something there. And I remember going to her house and she saw the work and she immediately said, listen, Hassan, these are great. You've got about five years' worth of shows there. If you want, we can just do shows. You don't have to shoot for the next five years. This was an important point in my, in my life and my photography. When I came out to her house, I sort of thought, well, what I'm going to do now is going to go and work even harder and try to have like 10 years' worth of work in, in you know, have it saved. This was really good for me because it kept me relevant long term, you know, because then I was working different stories. And as it happens, when I started thinking about what I was doing, I just think I just have to be true to myself because I didn't have any education in the arts or history or understanding the business of art. I thought the best thing to do, if Rose liked this work, just stay true to myself. Don't try to be smart, trying to be too artistic, arty and stuff like that. So I really kept it to that way. And I sort of told myself, well, listen, I'm somebody who uh, split into two. You know, there's Hassan of London, there's Hassan of Morocco. And really, I realized this when I get on the plane going from Marrakesh to London, I literally have to take off my Moroccan hat and put on my London, you know, armor on in a sense and vice versa. So I played with these two notions, you know, playing around with the two stories of me being in the middle, trying to document my friends in London, you know, the, um, the way we grew up, you know, in the 80s, we used to do counterfeit stuff. The big brands didn't design for us. So we'd buy the fabric and put in a jean jacket. So this came naturally with my pictures. I would go and buy fabric and make five G levers uh, and then create like a backdrop. And this really came naturally when I'm in Morocco, I'm doing that. When I'm in London or Dubai or New York, I would just shoot. And I looked at it as documenting my friends. And I took the idea also from, uh, you know, uh, Melix Dibia a photographer like himself and many other photographers who documented their cities and their people which really documents an era uh, you know a style so for well I'm the next generation who's been scattered around like my foreign friends why not capture them and that, let's why not make something out of nothing something that's really cheap make it grand make it look you know like rock star so you know I would use the cheapest fabrics the cheapest things in the market that's around you know not to be too clever and work with the artisan and stuff like that and I suppose I create this notion between uh, almost kitsch, uh, you know, to, but hopefully there's depth within that, you know, hopefully there's different layers within that. People really look through that, but, uh, you know, they're eye-catching, I suppose. Well, I think that it's amazing that you referenced Malik Sadibi because uh, this, this photographer, this figure, because actually that was the person that kind of got me into art because it's always these pivotal figures that span from popular sphere and this kind of what is this exalted art sphere but it was because his work was profiled on the cover of Ocrian Razor's The Short Century which was this exhibition about Africa and um, I was interested in understanding what it meant to be African because I'm half Sudanese half Egyptian and I was being told by people I mean growing up my life began in the council estate in Glasgow and then 
South Central LA. You can imagine um, the, uh, the 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 misnomers and the yes. misuse of language and terminology. But I wanted to understand what that meant, and this I wanted to see this exhibition, and actually it ended up leading me to want to work in that museum even because I was like that's the place where that show happened um even though I never really got to actually see that show but I became obsessed with that work but look we're two kind of we're we're a generation similar. apart yeah. but it's a very similar experience uh connecting through the tissue of diasporic individuals from the continent and I think that's a really important uh, point to, to to dwell upon, but also to think about that idea of creating worlds, texture, smell, um, feeling, taking something that maybe uh, isn't a, of a isn't a brand, but is the brand because you make it what you want to make it of it, and uh, it it brings me to your 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 kind of evolution from photography into filmmaking, and um, my my and I believe everyone's curiosity about a project that I believe you've been dreaming up really since 1989 the year the Berlin Wall fell which is uh, uh, a project that a project that uh, I don't feel like I can even begin to articulate can you tell us about it this new film of yours uh, well basically just to keep it short um, it's a film between uh, Capoeira and Guinea. Capoeira is a practice in Brazil and Guinea is a practice from Morocco uh, it's something I practiced in uh, Capoeira in the uh, early 90s and uh, became a good friend of my teacher and, and just discovered this whole new world and that made me I would always ask myself why did I fall in love with this Brazilian martial art? And then I realised it was actually also to do the journey of me growing up in Morocco with the Gnome music, because they're very spiritual music, and they, they kind of touched me in that kind of way. So this was um, an idea that started back in early 2000, when I had the opportunity to bring the two practices together, my teacher and another teacher, another master, two masters, uh, thing, to do uh, a big opening for Gnome Festival. In, in, in Morocco, I think 2002 in the But then when I finished that, my idea was I want to do a documentary now. You know, the same thing about these two brotherhoods meeting that have similarities in the background. You know, the, you know, the, the idea of the film is tackling the two cities, Marrakesh and Salvador, these two young masters, one Gnoa Capoeira, to highlight the practices, the, uh, talk about the religion a little bit, about the background of slavery, you know, the, the journey of slavery to these two different uh, countries, continents. Um, so it's going to be highlighting these ideas. And it's a, it's a very personal project. And I have to thank, uh, you know, um, uh, the people believing me doing this at the moment, which I'm halfway through there. So at the moment, I'm sort of 30% there. I'm just got to try to get to Brazil to, to finish filming the Brazilian part. And this idea of linking these two very different cultures, it, it has been, uh, uh, it's been a feat really it, because of the current ongoing. And I think one of the things that we forget is that the we are not post-pandemic, no matter what no. government wants to tell you. Um, the, the situation uh, geopolitically, if we call it that, has really affected the potential to make the work that you dreamed of. And you've kind of had to pivot and reconfigure. Tell us about that. Well, you know, you know, when you sometimes when you have something and idea you believe in and you have time to build it in your head before you do it. 
um, and the longer it takes, the more you think about it, the more you get everything correct, which I did have in this project from 2002. Uh, you know, over the years, I thought if I had the opportunity to do it, you know, I would do it in this space and that shot. This, you know, had everything worked out. The um, funny part of this was when I had the opportunity to do it, we got we was in lockdown. So the, because the whole story was outdoors and restaurants and streets and, you know, it's to do a gathering. This was no more. So I literally had like, I think, three or four weeks to sit down to present this new idea to try and to get the, 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 some finance up front to start filming and also to think of the idea what I'm going to do and I have this opportunity. Um, it was challenging, but it was great because it made me realise what happened with us in COVID. The whole doc- documentary become more about people inside, you know, where before it was more about outside. It's about people, but it was more about the outside, uh, you know, the markets and stuff like that. So it's getting more time. It's almost like you get an opportunity to spend a little bit of time with the people, um, you know, getting to know them a little bit, going into their houses or their workshops and stuff like that. So it took a different route. Um, and now I've just got to try to finish off the same similar idea because I'm, it's, it's kind of a script. It's not a script, but it's just give like a, kind of a storyline between the two I better do like a an idea of a script so they can mirror because the whole film should be editing together so it's like a mirror kind from one country to the other all the way through that's that's the idea and in the in this film we're gonna show a clip in a second to give people a sense of the kind of texture but really you're mapping this idea of not only the two different cultures but two different bloodlines that connect around histories of slavery not only literal but also the imagination would that be correct to say definitely because you know because it's these two um, at the moment i'm calling it brotherhood um and um it's about these two sets of people that have been scattered by slavery roots to uh, being pushed into uh the religion that's in that country so here the now i'm a muslim but they're more practice sufism with um, Gnaw is more African practice in the sense we look at it, if you want to say it that way. And Capoeira as well, they're sort of more Catholic, but they also have Canton Blay, which is very much an African practice. So you have this kind of uh, similarity in the different ways, you know, how these two cultures, though they've been pushed into something, they're still keeping something from, uh, from before, but even before, it's different tribes. So, you know, it's been put together as different people and trying to create something new, uh, in this new land um, and also talking about the two cities the, the magical cities you know where you have religion you have the positive and negative uh, so I'm really just highlighting these as I said before it's to, to really talk about this, all this stuff deep in each each subject needs some documentary to be honest with you so I'm just trying to highlight the journey give it some text, texture some color to be able to highlight for people to question and, and hopefully take more interest and look deeper into each subject. Maybe it's the beginning of a magnum opus, we could say. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. But do, do you want to do you want to say anything before I share screen and and show the, the clip that you've chosen for us? Uh, no, I think this is just a, a sort of um, a working process um, of just to kind of share this this moment. It's a bit of a collage.
Caesar we were watching just was um, continuing to, 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 it was in the loop. And what was kind of brilliant is I could hear the sounds of the clacking of, of, of trays of a domestic sphere, which was so loud and it felt so rhythmic actually in relation to what we just uh, heard there in that end scene. Can you just give us a, a, a bit of a, uh, an insight into that ritual that we just saw and that kind of that feeling of transcendence that kind of comes out in the, the creation of that sonic image? Um, I mean, this that's an important part of the documentaries, which is called the Lila, which is the, the you know the, the actual practice of the of the night from around ten in the evening until dawn, basically, and they have all these uh, rhythms uh, with color. There's a lot of astrology. There's there's I mean, it's very deep to to go into it. So the idea is really to try to get that feel, like we said earlier on, trying to get almost that smell and the color and the texture and the sound into people's spirit as they're watching. So it's really trying to see how to capture that and trying to say, um, I'm not trying to be uh, an artistic thing. I'm just trying to do something that could really touch people. You know, it's like when you hear a good song that makes you happy, you're happy, or if you love song makes you love. So I just wanted this piece of film to really translate into people's um, uh, frequencies to touch them wherever they like it or not, but to really to be able to touch them and not to look at it as, just a, as a piece of art. It's really it's about people. It's about uh, something that I grew up seeing as one and stuff like that, part of my journey, but it's really about the, the, the masters. Well, I'd like to argue that the frequencies of music, the frequencies of capoeira, the frequencies of, 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 of uh, a logo, a label, a, 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 a shop, a smell, a cityscape, that is that phenomenological thing that happens when you encounter the memory of a, for me, for example, like a Fuji song or a, um, a, even like the miseducation of Lauren Hill, which was played endlessly on loop in the background yesterday. It, it is art because what art does, I think, is it transports us into ourselves. And yeah. I think that you are really continually doing that, but your modesty and your charm is, is I think, what um, uh, makes us love you all the more, I think. Thank you, <laughs> No, really, thank you. Uh, well, you know, uh, it shouldn't be about me, you know, I'm, I'm the camera person. I'm sort of the one should be behind. And it's funny how things turn uh, towards you at the end. It's like, no, uh, so the other day somewhere I had to sit down and Google something about myself to show something because I didn't have, have it on the thing. And years ago, it was like pictures of my work and now there's pictures of me with my work. And I'm like, that's yeah. bizarre. <laughs> so it's uh, very bizarre. Well, we're in the age of uh, age of social media, but I think that if anyone's going to be able to decode uh, uh, facts from fiction or understand that blur, those blurred lines, it's you. And I'm really Thank grateful you. that that we've entered the frame today here in Paris. This this late morning, this celebrating, you know, a memento really to 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 Mar Marrakesh, to Morocco, where we should have been, but where we will return and where we will go yes. and we will be with you, Hassan. Yeah, we're going to make it. Part two is coming, inshallah, next year. We'll we, we be here. But thank you as well, Omar. Thanks, 154, as well, for making this happen. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, take care. Bye. Bye-bye.